ECO Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. Eco Report is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello, and welcome to Eco Report for WFHB. I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. Coming up later in today's feature report, Enrique Sands with the Indiana Environmental Reporter will report on the waters of the United States, which details developments in the ongoing struggle to define and regulate management of wetlands. And now for your environmental reports. A new study of more than 80 refineries raises serious concerns about the wastewater they are pumping into lakes and rivers across the U.S. One of those polluters is BP's Whiting Refinery in northwest Indiana. According to the report released today, called Oil's Unchecked Outfalls, more than a half billion gallons of pollution-laden waters are released from refineries each day. The wastewater includes toxic chemicals and metals, including arsenic, cyanide, chromium, and more. The analysis shows that the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency is failing in its legal responsibilities to regulate, according to a statement announcing the report, quote, it's vital that refineries are held accountable for violations that pollute our water commons and that regulators are held accountable for regulating them and protecting our water, end quote. Mitch McNeil, chair of the Surfrider Foundation Chicago chapter, said in the statement. He said that people drink water, play in the water, and eat fish from waters bordered by refineries. Quote, they have a right to be able to do so, McNeil said, without endangering their health, unquote. The report was completed by the Environmental Integrity Project, a nonprofit organization dedicated to enforcing environmental laws and strengthening policy to protect public health as well as the environment. The group examined the records of 81 refineries across the country, looking at information dating back a few years up until 2021. The analysis showed that more than 500 million gallons of wastewater pour out of U.S. refineries every day, and it's loaded with cyanide, nitrogen, arsenic, industrial salts, chromium, selenium, and other dangerous pollutants. According to the report, the BP refinery in Whiting is one of the worst polluters in the nation. In 2021, it released the third most selenium, 3,589 pounds, into Lake Michigan. Selenium is a pollutant that can cause mutations in fish. The BP refinery is the fifth worst for nitrogen, releasing roughly 574,000 pounds, which feeds algal blooms and low-oxygen dead zones. The Whiting facility also dumped 31 million pounds of total dissolved solids, 9 million pounds of chloride, 
more than 40,000 pounds of oil and grease and 150 pounds of arsenic, among many other pollutants, according to the EPA data. Not only has the BP Whiting refinery had issues with water pollution, but it also has repeated air problems. The more than century-old facility was sued in federal court in 2019 for regularly violating legal limits on fine particulate pollution, or soot, in the years prior. That type of pollution can trigger asthma and heart attacks, along with other respiratory and cardiovascular health issues. As part of a settlement released last year to resolve a lawsuit, BP was required to pay more than $500,000 in penalties. Inside Climate Change reports that if you were an American college student studying biology in the 1970s, your course textbook probably contained information about standard topics like photosynthesis, cellular division, genetics, and food chains. But you might also have come across something less expected, tucked in the last few pages of your book, an explanation of the greenhouse effect and what it could mean for global temperatures in the future. The study found that textbooks' coverage of climate change expanded from 1970 to 2019, but that the increase was inconsistent and that the books had failed to keep pace with the volume of new scientific research on the topic, especially in the last 20 years. More surprisingly, in the 2010s, textbooks contained fewer sentences about climate change than they had in the 2000s. The authors also found a decrease in content addressing solutions to climate change after a peak in the 1990s and a trend of moving climate information further and further back in the book. Early textbooks contain little information about climate change, and if the teacher doesn't supplement that content with other lessons, it sends a signal to students that it's not an urgent issue. If there's minimal content placed at the end, we're implicitly telling people that it's not important. Even textbooks from this era that don't explicitly address global warming still warn of looming ecological crisis triggered by pollution, deforestation, dwindling resources, and exploding human population. Life on Earth from 1978 concludes with a bleak prediction. Quote, We believe that mankind is about to enter one of the dark ages of human history. Most of the ecological problems that threaten us will be resolved by the end of the 21st century, either by human intelligence or by nature's ruthless indifference. End quote. In reality, the problems will not be resolved by 2100. Global warming will continue, perhaps reaching 5 degrees Celsius and a sea level rise of 50 feet. What was also lacking in early texts was any mention of mass extinction. Inside Climate News reports that scientists have known for years that the Arctic is warming faster than the rest of the world, nearly four times faster according to a recent study. Tracking that warming is critical to understanding climate change, not just in the Arctic, but around the world. New data and analysis are crucial. Now, an international team of scientists has compiled data from 2001 to 2018 to explore both surface and basal freezing thaw cycles and uncover the mechanisms behind them. These findings could improve our understanding of changes in the atmosphere, 
ice ocean system and the balance of sea ice in the Arctic. The new study was published in November in the European Geosciences Union publication, The Cryosphere, helping scientists understand when Arctic air might disappear altogether in the summer. Timing of the melt is really critical, and the study shows that the timing is changing, said Dartmouth Professor Donald K. Perovich, one of the study's five authors. According to Meyer, the study gives scientists a picture of how the melt season is evolving and how it might evolve in the future and when Arctic ice might disappear in the summer. Current predictions suggest that this may occur between 2040 or 2050, although it's a complicated calculus affected by many variables. One variable, of course, is whether the countries of the world drastically cut emissions of CO2, methane, and other greenhouse gases. The Arctic Ocean is roughly the same size as the lower 48 states, and it used to be 90% ice-covered, said Meyer. Now it's down to 40 to 50% ice-covered at the end of the summer and getting lower. That's a big change. Atmospheric carbon dioxide was last at the current level during the mid-Pleistocene era three and a half million years ago. The CO2 and temperatures were in a narrow range for many years. Because there weren't changes, the ice-ocean equilibrium was stable. The ocean level was 50 feet higher. Thus, if we stabilize CO2 around 410 to 420 ppm, the ocean level should continue to rise to the 50-foot level. After years of research on the Greenland ice sheet, scientists reported in the journal Nature that temperatures there have been the warmest in at least the last 1,000 years, the longest amount of time their ice cores could be analyzed to. And they found that between 2001 and 2011, it was on average 1.5 degrees Celsius warmer than it was during the 20th century. The report's authors said human-caused climate change played a significant role in the dramatic rise in temperatures in the critical Arctic region, where melting ice has a considerable global impact. Quote, Greenland is the largest contributor currently to sea level rise, end quote, Maria Horhold, lead author of the study and a glaciologist with the Alfred Wegener Institute. And if we keep on going with the carbon emissions as we do right now, then by 2100, Greenland will have contributed up to 20 inches to sea level rise, and that will affect millions of people who live in coastal areas. Here's something shocking on environmental news. There's good news. The New York Times reports the Biden administration announced Wednesday that it has banned logging and road building on about 9 million acres of the Tongass National Forest in southeast Alaska, aiming to settle a two-decade battle over the fate of North America's largest temperate rainforest. WFHB has been involved in this story by running several pieces demonstrating that the logging of Tongass would be a big mistake. The new rule reinstates protections in the pristine Alaskan backcountry that were first imposed in 2001, but stripped away by President Donald J. Trump in 2020. Tom Vilsack, United States Secretary of Agriculture, said the effort would protect cedar, hemlock, and Sitka spruce trees, many of them more than 800 years old, that provide essential habitats for 400 species of wildlife, including bald eagles, salmon, and the world's greatest concentration of black bears. 
The towering trees also play an essential role in fighting climate change. They store more than 10% of carbon accumulated by all national forests in the United States, according to the government. In addition to prohibiting road construction, a first step toward new logging, the United States Forest Service Plan also puts an end to large-scale logging of old-growth timber across the forest's entire 16 million acres. A news release by the University of Minnesota shows the importance of wolves in maintaining moose populations. 23% of collared moose that died in northeastern Minnesota over the past 15 years were infected with a brainworm parasite transmitted by white-tailed deer. That is one of the biggest threats to adult moose mortality in Minnesota. The study was conducted in two areas of Minnesota in an effort to understand and reverse a long-term moose population decline. Researchers captured and tracked 94 adult moose, 89 deer, and 47 adult wolves during the study period. The study found that most deer and moose performed seasonal migration with different habitat selections by the two species. Deer and moose overlap increased during the spring migration and summer seasons, a time of greatest brainworm transmission risk. Wolf pressure was linked to greater segregation of deer and moose across habitats and reduced brainworm trans transmission risk. And now, Enrique Sayings with the Indiana Environmental Reporter will discuss the waters of the United States, which details developments in the ongoing struggle to define and regulate management of wetlands. A lot of Hoosiers like to play in or on the water, whether it's fishing, hunting, boating, tubing, or something else. When we're there, most of us probably don't think, I wonder whether these are state jurisdictional waters. But for a lot of Americans, that distinction could mean a lot for the waterway's health and for communities downstream from those waterways. The Clean Water Act regulates discharge of pollutants into what lawmakers who drafted the law ambiguously identified as, quote, waters of the United States. That definition defines the limit of the federal government's reach into pollution regulation. If they are waters of the United States, they're the federal government's responsibility. If they aren't, they're someone else's. But for years now, the definition of waters of the United States has changed. Presidential administrations have changed it, federal judges have changed it, Supreme Court justices have changed it. And caught in the middle are all of us, the water drinkers and water users. But it's not an easy problem to fix because the waters of the United States decision affects property rights, states' rights, people's health, and the health of the environment where we live, and how we live life. The Biden administration has finalized a new interpretation of waters of the United States that officially restores many federal protections for waterways that were in place for decades, but were altered various times by subsequent presidents beginning in 2015. EPA Administrator Michael Regan said the updated definition was a result of engagement with parties that would be affected by its implementation. Environmental and health groups welcome the administration's move, but farming organizations and trade groups for many other potentially polluting industries oppose the decision, which could make them and others responsible for undertaking costly permitting and mitigation efforts.
The definition of waters of the United States has changed in stutters over the past eight years, creating uncertainty that has affected the health and livelihood of Hoosiers. Between 1986 and 2015, the definition included seven categories of waterways under federal protection, the bounds of which were limited by several lawsuits that reached the U.S. Supreme Court. The Obama administration attempted to expand the list of waters protected by the federal government by implementing the Clean Water Rule in 2015. The rule included waterways adjacent to traditional navigable waterways, case-specific waterways, and tributaries that provide chemical, physical, or biological functions to downstream waters. This is how EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy explained the rule eight years ago. And yes, she is very much from Boston. The rule we're releasing today was developed with the Army Corps of Engineers, with input from industries all across the country. Using the best available science, we can identify and protect interconnected wetlands and streams that are vital to healthy waters and vital to healthy communities downstream. To be clear, our proposal does not add to or expand the scope of waters historically protected under the Clean Water Act. It clarifies which waters are protected and which waters are not. It cuts red tape. It gives certainty to business, and it clears the way for the Clean Water Act to do its job so future generations can continue to enjoy these precious places. The rule was not well received. A coalition of states, including Indiana, sued to stop the rule's implementation. A federal court granted an injunction in 2018 saying the rule would cause loss of sovereignty and irreparable harm. The rule was not implemented in Indiana and 27 other states. The jurisdictional expansion attempted by the Obama administration was followed by a contraction. The Trump administration gleefully repealed the rule. Here's what the former president said when announcing the repeal process had begun. He was surrounded by representatives from farming and building organizations. EPA's so-called Waters of the United States rule is one of the worst examples of federal regulation, and it has truly run amok and is one of the rules most strongly opposed by farmers, ranchers, and agricultural workers all across our land. It's prohibiting them from being allowed to do what they're supposed to be doing. It's been a disaster. The Clean Waters Act says that the EPA can regulate navigable waters, meaning waters that truly affect interstate commerce. But a few years ago, the EPA decided that navigable waters can mean nearly every puddle or every ditch on a farmer's land or any place else that they decide, right? It was a massive power grab. The EPA's regulators were putting people out of jobs by the hundreds of thousands, and regulations and permits started treating our wonderful small farmers and small businesses as if they were a major industrial polluter. The administration wrote its own limited definition, the Navigable Waters Protection Rule, in 2020 and fully repealed the Obama Rule. The rule bucked the EPA's own science-backed conclusion about the interconnectivity of waterways and limited federal protections to just four categories of waterways. Territorial seas and navigable waters, perennial and some intermittent tributaries, some lakes, ponds and impoundments, and wetlands directly adjacent to jurisdictional waters. Farmers, builders, and many other interests that were relieved of financial burdens and federal environmental responsibilities supported the NWPR and the repeal of the 2015 rule, 
saying it restored property rights taken away by what American Farm Bureau Federation President Zippy Duvall called the largest land grab in the history of this country. According to some studies, the Trump EPA relied on dubious methodology when weakening federal protections for waterways, including assuming that states would fill in the gaps left by the federal government by writing their own laws to protect waterways. The opposite happened in many states, including Indiana. In Indiana, the NWPR resulted in members of the Indiana Builders Association, who also served as state senators, successfully pushing through a bill that eliminated state protections for more than half the state's remaining wetlands and weakened the protections that remained. State Senator Chris Garten specifically mentioned the changes in federal regulation as justification for the legislation. The intent of Senate Bill 389 is to bring it in line with the latest federal definitions and most up-to-date Federal Clean Water Act guidance and align Indiana's regulatory environment regarding wetlands with the 42 other states. Officials from around the state predicted the repeal of state protections for wetlands would negatively affect water quality in the state, increase flooding, and cost communities millions of dollars to replicate the natural wetland features that would be destroyed if those wetlands were developed. The Indiana Wetlands Task Force, established as part of the law, found that the worst effects of the repeal were avoided due to changes in federal regulations. But the law caused the increased loss of isolated wetlands found on farmland. The report concluded, quote, This change has provided short-term economic benefit to farmers and developers at the cost of long-term flooding issues. A federal judge in Arizona allowed the EPA, now headed by the Biden administration, to voluntarily withdraw the Trump rule in 2021. The Biden administration's Waters of the United States definition keeps the seven categories of waterways in place prior to 2015, including ephemeral streams and other waterways that have a, quote, significant nexus to navigable waterways. The term significant nexus is a test put in place by former Justice Anthony Kennedy in a 2006 Supreme Court ruling to determine which waterways could be considered waters of the United States. The rule and a significant nexus test could be altered by the majority right-wing Supreme Court in an upcoming decision for Sackett v. EPA, a case brought by an Idaho couple in a protracted legal battle with the EPA since 2007. The couple, Michael and Chantel Sackett, attempted to develop land determined to be a wetland protected by the Clean Water Act in 2004. The couple received local permits but failed to get the necessary permits from the federal government. The EPA told the couple they would face a $40,000 a day fine if they refused to restore the property to its original state. The couple sued, challenging the EPA's authority to regulate their land under the Clean Water Act. The case made its way to the Supreme Court in 2012, and the court ruled the couple could litigate the order in federal court. The case returned to federal court, which ruled in favor of the EPA. The ruling was upheld by a federal appeals court. The 2021 case now being reviewed by the court seeks to repeal the significant nexus test and limit Clean Water Act jurisdiction to relatively permanent standing or continuously flowing bodies of water, as determined by the court's conservatives in the same case that gave the nation a significant nexus test. The decision is expected later this year. For Eco Report, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. 
Here at EcoReport, we are currently looking for reporters, engineers, and segment producers. Our goal is to report facts on how we're all affected by global climate disruption and the ongoing assaults on our air, land, and water. We also celebrate ecologists, tree huggers, soil builders, and an assortment of champions who actively protect and restore our natural world, particularly those who are active in south-central Indiana. All levels of experience and all ages are welcome, and we provide the training you'll need. WFHB also offers internships. To volunteer for EcoReport, give us a call at 812-323-1200 or email us at earth at wfhb.org. And now for some upcoming events. The Brown County State Park Hike Series continues with a The Lake That Never Was hike on Saturday, February 4th from 11 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. You will learn about Taylor Hollow Lake, a lake that was started but never finished. The hike is about two and a half miles long and is very rugged. Lots of steep climbs with ruts and several creek crossings. Dress for the weather and wear waterproof boots. Meet at the Nature Center. Take the full snow moon hike at Spring Mill State Park on Saturday, February the 4th from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Join Anthony for a one-mile hike on Trail 1 and 4 to learn all the history and folklore of the full snow moon. Meet at the Lakeview Activity Center. Enjoy the next winter exploration hike at Nebo Ridge at Monroe Lake on Wednesday, February 8th, beginning at 1 p.m. These hikes include off-trail hiking into lesser-known areas. They are exploratory with no set path. The terrain can be rugged and there are no toilet facilities. Sign up at bit.ly slash weh hyphen feb8 hyphen 2023. The next winter hike series at Brown County State Park will be about wildfire ecology on Saturday, February the 11th from 11 a.m. to 1.30 p.m. Brown County State Park has its own wildfire burn every year. You will learn about the burn area, wildfire ecology, wildland, firefighting strategies, and the effect the fire has on the park. The hike is about three miles long and is very rugged. Dress for the weather and meet at the Nature Center. Learn how to build your own radio telescope at the do-it-yourself hydrogen line radio astronomy class at the Switchyard Park picnic shelter from 7.45 to 8.45 p.m. on Saturday, February 11th. You will be using easily obtainable materials, and maybe you will get to see the rare green comet. Dress for the weather. Sign up at bloomington.in.gov slash parks. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy. Our feature report was prepared and presented by Rike Sainz with the Indiana Environmental Reporter. Our script today was assembled by Juliana Daly and edited by Patrick Callanan. Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. 
Patrick Callanan produced today's show and edited the audio. For WFHB, I'm Juliana Daly. And I'm Cynthia Roberts. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.